Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. 2020 marks the 250th birthday of Ludwig von Beethoven, the most famous composer of European-style classical music. Continuing our birthday celebration, today we'll hear from WABE's music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. Before listening to some examples of Beethoven's music, We'll dive into the early years of his life. December 2020 marks the 250th birth anniversary of Ludwig van Beethoven, who many consider the greatest composer of all time. We're getting a jump start on that celebration with our own Beethoven 250 series. WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart is with us on this curated tour of the celebrated music master. Scott, welcome back. Thanks, Lois. It's always great to be here as we are still virtually doing our shows from our various homes. Um, I've been doing a little bit of decluttering. I suppose a lot of us have during the quarantine, going through lots of old scrapbooks and photo albums. And it's fun to look back and try to connect some of those dots from your past into your adult life. And you can sometimes discover all of those origins about why you squeeze the toothpaste from the middle or the bottom, or <laughs> you leave the toilet paper hanging over the top or the bottom. Anyway, it's a really common practice, I think, with music historians and scholars to examine early stages of a composer's career and then try to detect these connections to later, more mature styles. And I think that's been a really popular exercise, especially with Beethoven. Yeah, the music historians and scholars have neatly divided his output into three periods. And early on, Beethoven wrote a lot of music while still in his teens, early 20s, essentially reproducing the 18th century classical forms reminiscent of Haydn and Mozart. It wouldn't take long before he would find his own voice, if you will, into a more experimental approach that effectively ushers in the romantic era of music. That's right. And I think a lot of us, you know, that were at music school kind of revered Beethoven as this master composer, knowing what he sounded like at the end of his life. But the young Beethoven was mostly known as a piano superstar. He was an up and coming composer, but he was a real piano virtuoso who was raised in the heyday of Mozart and Haydn who are just about a half a generation apart from him. He was actually a pupil of Haydn's for a while. That was not a fantastic relationship, <laughs> but it was nonetheless a good connection to one of the master composers of the day. And it is alleged that Beethoven did have one meeting with Mozart in Vienna. Beethoven also grew up, as we've discussed before, in massive political turmoil of revolutionary Europe, all of the courts 
centuries past were breaking down. Beethoven was just 19 years old when the French Revolution broke out, and he was kind of making a name for himself during that horrible reign of terror in France and the Napoleonic Wars. And in fact, he even had to travel through warring Austrian and Prussian troops when he moved from Bonn to Vienna. Yeah. He had such a tragic life on several levels, beginning with physical abuse from an alcoholic father. He had chronic abdominal pain, joint problems, eye inflammation. He was a very heavy drinker. They found cirrhosis of the liver after he died. And he was also plagued by family problems, relationship disasters, unrequited love, financial shortcomings, though not consistently. In fact, he amassed quite a fortune, but most notably and easily understood severe depression that was brought on by his increasing deafness at a very early age. I mean, what more horrible affliction could come to a musician than deafness? And even to the point where he considered suicide over, over the matter. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't have names for all of the issues of health and mental health that we have today and certainly the support systems and the kinds of treatments in the 19th century were not nearly as advanced as they are now so we know a lot of his symptoms we just know that he wasn't able to um, kind of recover from a lot of them physically and and emotionally during his lifetime for better or for worse all of these struggles put him as the perfect example of the romantic era conception of a struggling artist, someone that is working through all of life's crises, but for the purpose of creating a more beautiful art. So today, I thought we would try to see what was cooking with young Beethoven, as you said, that first third of the three periods that we study in his musical output. Beethoven was mastering the musical language of his time, which would be, we would call the classical, the end of the classical era, kind of like a toddler learning to walk. But as you mentioned, at the same time, he was experimenting with sound and with techniques and checking out the boundaries and the borderlines that might allow him to find his unique voice that we recognize today. Beethoven was born in Bonn, Germany in 1770. His early training was from his father and a few other local musicians. He held a court position for a period of time. And when he was just 22, he moved from Bonn to Vienna. Yeah, and it's from his birth until about 1802 when he noticed that he was first having some problems hearing that kind of frames this first compositional period. Yeah, and the scoop on that is that his father actually boxed him in the ears when he'd get angry when he was drunk and would lash out. So it's quite possible that that Hearing loss was brought on by childhood brain trauma. It's interesting. There are so many 21st century healthcare workers that try to figure out what the causes were. That always comes up. Also, apparently, lead was used to sweeten cheap wine during this time. And they did find high levels of lead in his blood at the autopsy. And so it's been suggested that possibly... Uh, that was uh, something that contributed to his deafness. And there are lists and lists of different syndromes and sicknesses that also could have somehow been in the mix there. Oh, how he triumphed over that adversity. Now, in 1796, he was all up 26 years old. He wrote his sextet, Opus 71 for winds, supposedly all in one night. But this early piece wasn't performed until about 11 years later, 
around the time of his symphonies number no. five and six, which already placed him in the middle period. <laughs> Yet this sextet clearly sounds like a much earlier work. It's elegant, it's more lighthearted. Most definitely. This is just a little four movement wind work. It sounds very classical, as you say, very nicely defined melodies, pleasant harmonies and nice evenness of phrases. There's occasionally a little bit of an edge where you start to hear Beethoven asserting himself. So here's a little snippet of the very cheery fourth movement of Beethoven's Sextet for Winds. This is for pairs of clarinets, bassoons, and horns. Haydn was in London in 1795, becoming very rich and famous around the same time as this Beethoven sextet. And so just as a contrast, here's what symphonic music now on a larger scale sounded like at about the same time. Colin Davis leading the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam in that third movement, the minuet movement from Haydn's Symphony Number no. 104 in D, one of the London symphonies, although it's often given the nickname of London, even though I think there were 12 of them. From about the mid-1700s through the early 1830s, it was trendy for European aristocracy to employ a harmony music ensemble, a small wind ensemble. This was their equivalent of background music. These ensembles performed both public and private concerts and were loud enough to be heard over meals at festive dinners and social events held outside or in large dining halls. That's right. And this is one of the origins of the modern wind band ensemble. And I'm thrilled that Beethoven was able to write a number of wind pieces, both for pleasant dining background, but also a couple of nice concert works for this little wind group. The typical setup for this octet was two oboes, two clarinets, two bassoons, and two French horns. Beethoven wrote a small-scale version of a little piece called a rondino around 1792 when he was 22 years old.
Beethoven's Rondino for Wind Octet. The headliner here really is those duetting horns, a really popular combination in late 18th century European audiences. This is an earlier work of Beethoven's, but I think it still stirs up a really wonderful array of emotions and, and sensual sensations uh, for the listener to experience. Yeah, and like Mozart, Beethoven was incapable of writing anything trivial. Mozart wrote these harmony works and they are profound. So yeah, they can't suppress their genius. In the Beethoven catalog, designated by the term opus, the opus one is a set of three piano trios first published in 1795. Beethoven was 25 at the time. Yeah, and Lois, as you said, there were so many works that came before this, which now are cataloged as without opus, <laughs> even though yes. they still have an order. <laughs> but yeah. there are lots and lots of pieces starting from when Beethoven was very young that are uh, in, in a kind of production order that come up to the opus one. And so these trios are lovely. The trios and the Sonata Patatique, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, were dedicated to Vienna's Prince Karl Lichnowsky, one of Beethoven's most generous patrons. And while Beethoven did have a court position for a while, one of the very different parts about his life than most other composers up to his lifetime is that he did not depend on an income from the court or from the church which meant that he was not beholden to the suggestions of anyone that was paying him. He had a really great arrangement from some patrons where he could get a paycheck regularly without actually working for anyone. We should all try this arrangement sometime in our <laughs> lives. <laughs> well, Mozart tried it, but with much less yes. success, sadly. But yeah, they were ahead of their times and it, Truly, in, in many ways, he set the standard. He was the template for an independent right. musician. Yep. So a whole new model for how to be a composer on your own. So here's a little bit of the opus number one, trio number one by Beethoven. of the very young Ludwig van Beethoven, his first published work. The trio opus one, number one, in E-flat for piano, violin, and cello. In that recording, we heard the wonderful Beaux-Arts trio. Um, Scott, that could have been recorded in our beloved Indiana You're University right. School of Music. <laughs> Yes, in the music school. I, I took for granted early on at Indiana that Menachem Pressler, who was the pianist from the Beaux-Arts, was just, you know, always around. And you're right, they often uh, concertized and recorded in Bloomington because it was most convenient for him. But what a tasteful and lovely pianist and whole uh, ensemble they had for so many years. Franz Josef Haydn actually had advised Beethoven not to publish the third of these trios, thinking it was a little too advanced to be accepted by the ears of the general public. We know from some diary writing that Beethoven interpreted this as jealousy on the part of his teacher Haydn. And we also have lots of accounts of Beethoven's famous temper 
Uh, but he eventually cooled down about this entire situation. But it's a reminder that there was, even in these early days of Beethoven's youth and early output, lots of drama. Well, since we were reminiscing about Bloomington, I will quote my beloved mentor, Dr. Walter Kaufman, who, when he was explaining about Beethoven's attitude and behavior toward Haydn, his illustrious teacher, Dr. Kaufman said he was a hooligan. <laughs> That's probably very accurate. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Let's return to more of Lois's conversation with WABE music contributor Scott Stewart, part of Beethoven's 250th birthday year observance. While Beethoven was in Vienna, he forged a reputation as a brilliant pianist. By all accounts, his technique was amazing, and he was an equally amazing improviser. Jazz pianists today would have been impressed. So it's not surprising that he wrote two concertos, a dozen solo sonatas, and a lot of chamber music with piano in this early period. It was, for the most part, for his own use in public performance. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fun to watch Beethoven's musical life, and it, you'll see a thread of piano music always in it, regardless of whether he was working on Fidelio or the symphonies or any number of other uh, string quartets, chamber music. Piano was always in the mix, and it, it, for me, is one of the ways to connect into Beethoven most intimately and most personally, and um, I've always felt that I could know Beethoven well through his piano music. And his first piano sonata was published in 1799. This was the Grand Sonata Pathétique. Even at this time, we're getting some market savvy the publisher wanted to give it this title rather than just, you know, Sonata Number 1 or something. The Grand implied that it was important enough to be published on its own. A lot of sonatas might have been packaged together as a collection, but he wanted this one to be off by itself. The Sonata was already an established three-movement, fast, slow, fast movement form from the classical era. So we already had, we're used to this idea of a sonata, something that a solo pianist performed. And then the French pathétique, meaning moving or affecting. It doesn't really mean pathetic the way we might interpret that. So it didn't have a really negative meaning, but it meant that it was very emotion laden. So there are a lot of classical piano sonatas that start very quietly like this by Mozart. That's Mozart's sonata in A major, starting very gently. But Beethoven's starts with a bang, a big C minor bang. You mentioned that this sonata is in the key of C minor, 
which was also the key Beethoven used in his famous symphony number five. This key had been associated with tragedy since the early Baroque period. In this introduction, we hear many twists and turns, several outbursts, and plenty of that dazzling piano technique. And this is all just in the introduction right. <laughs> before the thus section begins, so stay tuned. Yeah, and this is where I think we start to hear a very moody Beethoven, uh, the reports of his personality coming through in his music. The suffering of that introduction is over, and now the fight begins. So the, the fast section, the beginning of what we call the exposition in this sonata form is brisk and urgent. Pianist Rudolf Serkin, one of the supreme interpreters of Beethoven's music. In the opening allegro section of Beethoven's Patetique Sonata. And I find this music very accessible. It's very listenable. And you can just turn off your analytical mind and let it wash. And it's a wonderful listen. I'm definitely a fan of that first very stormy movement. The slow movement, which is the second movement of the three, is a pretty simple one compared to the first, just a three-part design. And Lois, I love this theme. I can't help but have a little memory ping from my very first NPR listening when I was back in high school. music from the second movement, the slow movement of Beethoven's Patetique Sonata, was the opening and closing theme for the program Adventures in Good Music with the legendary host, Dr. Carl Haas. His show aired on classical stations, including WABE, from 1970 to 2007. He died in the late 90s, I think, but the show continued to be available in syndication. And over that theme, he would say, hello, everyone. (laughs) Good afternoon. That is really the model for all of our shows that analyze music because he was so wonderful at bringing what you might assume to be very highbrow or inaccessible music to you in your living room and breaking it down and saying this is why it's so great. Without ever being condescending. Yes, exactly, exactly. There are other adaptations of this tune, actually a number of rock songs based on the second movement of the Sonata Patatique. We're hearing a little bit of This Night by Billy Joel, uh, just passing on some information, not judgment. And of course, many of us remember Schroeder playing this entire movement in the 1969 movie, A Boy Named Charlie Brown. Oh, I remember that vividly. I adored that movie. And with Schroeder as pianist, there were some interesting animated effects on screen while he was playing, almost psychedelic. Well, it was 1969. (laughs) That's all you need to say. (laughs) Scott, the third movement of this sonata, the Sonata Pathétique, is not lighthearted or carefree as 
one might have expected from the classical era sonatas. It is bold, dark, and filled with dramatic tension and really near impossible to play well. Yes, exactly. So challenging to play this third movement and finale of the three is really interesting and I think indicative of one of Beethoven's primary characteristics that differentiates him from composers before is that he can pretty seamlessly jump from a very serious stormy dark tone to something that's much more graceful and passionate and pleasant uh, without it jarring us too much. So I think this is one of the, the great examples of Beethoven starting to find a unique sound and some characteristics that define him as a composer. Final movement of the Sonata Patatique, the third movement by Beethoven. This is music you can just bask in. And Lois, I know you're a pianist, and I suspect this is great fun to practice and perform as well. There is an element of genius in that Beethoven uses themes from previous movements and brings them back into different uh, guises in this movement, which kind of ties everything together with a nice big red ribbon. I think it's another really clever part of Beethoven's output that he started to extend into his symphonies and string quartets later. That was WABE music contributor Scott Stewart speaking with Lois Reitzes about Beethoven's early life. We'll be back with more of their conversation after a short break. This is WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Lois and WABE music contributor Scott Stewart have been discussing the early life of renowned composer Ludwig von Beethoven. Let's return to more of that conversation. Beethoven is known for his nine symphonies, which set the standards for all symphonies to follow. The symphony number one, premiered when Beethoven was just 30 years old. And it belongs more to the late 18th century, much in the tradition of his teacher, Haydn, who was still alive. I'm thinking this must have been a huge pressure situation for Beethoven. Mozart had not been gone long, 1791, Haydn was still alive, and publishers are starting to tell Beethoven uh, it's time for a symphony, and this would have been a really big ask for him. So he took his time, and I think Beethoven was strategic in making his claim on the symphony, especially if he wanted to take it into a new direction at some point. So this is not necessarily a piece which forecasts the future, if we're thinking of like the Fifth Symphony or the Ninth Symphony. This is very much Beethoven writing in his own present time. And I think it is also important to remember that 
He was still a very young man and wanted to ingratiate with the Viennese public for all of his stormy temperament and how capable he was of being dismissive and rude. There was still a part of him that yearned to be accepted by the Viennese. So this was something of a symphonic calling card, if you will. And in fact, at the premiere of his symphony number no. one, Beethoven was savvy enough to program a Mozart symphony, along with music from Haydn's oratorio, The Creation. Yeah, and it's important to remember, I think, that composers are business people, and he was always working with publishers, he was always working with concert promoters, and the public, and critics, and in a world without internet and Instagram, there were reviews. And so these were really important to composers. And one of my favorite reviews of this first symphony from the premiere, which was a really, really long concert, is that, among other compliments for the, the first symphony, was that the winds were overused. So that it was like music for band rather than for orchestra. Well, I wouldn't necessarily complain about that, but <laughs> I think there were expectations at the time. And I love that Beethoven starts the symphony, which is pitched in the key of C major, in the wrong key. So he takes a little bit of time to work us until we arrive at C major, but we don't start at that point like we would in a normal classical symphony. There's the C major. He did indeed power up his wind section, so you'll hear prominent use of flute, oboe, bassoon, and clarinet, and the clarinets were actually pretty new to the orchestra at this time, and French horn before the string section comes in. The allegro section, the first fast section of this first movement, is super energetic. The second movement of Beethoven's Symphony No. 1 is a graceful, slow movement. It bears the marking con moto, which in Italian means with motion. Which is kind of interesting, because we're used to the second movement being really slow of a classical symphony. And this movement actually plays as a triple meter minuet, which we normally hear in the third movement of the symphony. So it sounds a little bit more like a waltz. It is a very sweet little tune. It's simple and charming. This second slow movement of the first symphony is not super complicated, but it is distinctive in its use of timpani or the kettle drums. 
Now, here's where Beethoven the Revolutionary begins to emerge, albeit quietly, or at least momentarily. 18th century audiences, the second half of the 18th century, the classical era, those audiences had become used to the third movement of a symphony being a minuet in trio. The minuet is a stately dance, generally in a slower tempo, in triple meter or three, like a solo waltz. But the minuet was a courtly dance. And here we are, what, 10 years after the French Revolution had ended. Beethoven was not including anything for aristocrats. That's right. And one of these revolutionary moves that you're referring to started with banishing these courtly minuets and replacing them with wild frenetic scherzos, which is Italian for joke, much faster than symphonies had seen up to this time. So it put much bigger demands on the players and also listeners who were expecting something fairly reserved were not going to experience that. He also started to experiment with what we call cross rhythms, which confuse our rhythmic ears into thinking that we're in a duple meter or two instead of a triple meter or three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, which is uh, jarring, but thrilling, I think. This creates these lightning fast shifts of mood for a really great ride. Here's a little bit of the third movement of the first symphony. This is the kind of dynamic energy that sets the stage for all of the third movements of the symphonies that are coming down the pike. Now, the final movement, the fourth movement of this symphony, number one, is what most strongly foreshadows Beethoven's later work because maybe he was trying to ingratiate with the Viennese, but not without teasing them a little bit. And in fact, it begins with what is often used to illustrate Beethoven's humor. That slow introduction was really messing with the heads of those Viennese or with their ears more precisely. But the fact is he was making them lean forward for that scale to culminate, to reach a resolution finally, which it does so beautifully. And then the fast section of the fourth movement is a tour de force and certainly challenged the musicians of the orchestra at this time.
his work. We just don't, we don't associate humor with that romantic stereotype temperament of his. There are some great reports, even though we have more reports about him being rude and a little bit socially awkward and having crazy hair and eyebrows. <laughs> but he apparently had a great laugh and had a great sense of humor that he shared with his fairly small close circle of friends. And I'm always amazed that even in some of the later works where he was writing mostly or fully deaf, uh, I'm thinking like Symphony Number no. 8, that's just brimming over with joy and delight, knowing what his emotional state must have been, how he had the craft and the the spirit to produce that kind of emotion, knowing what kind of world he was living in, in, in his own mind. So this fourth movement is full of this playful spirit of Beethoven, and they start to hear little seeds of heroic and revolutionary Beethoven coming up. We're especially going to hear that in the third symphony, um, and that's that's coming down, down the road here. But I think that Beethoven learned his lessons from Haydn and from all of his predecessors in the classical era, and during this first third, this first compositional period, we see that he has become a compositional master and is also growing toward becoming mature Beethoven. He was a renegade, a hooligan, even as a young composer. And he mastered these classical sounds of Mozart and Haydn, and then he hitched them to this turbo rocket booster. And I think even if he had stopped here, we would remember him as being fantastic. But we know there's a lot more to come. So much more, and I so look forward to discussing it with you, Scott, and sharing it with all of you. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE music contributor and host of Strike Up the Band. He's on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. Scott, thank you. Thanks, Lois. My pleasure. As we all maneuver through this new normal, theaters and artists are also assessing their next steps. In April, Lois Reitz has spoke with Pearl Clegg, Alliance Theater playwright-in-residence, about how she is adapting to these circumstances. She, along with Tanache Kajizi-Bolden, held a virtual discussion about the play Sweat. Lois began by asking Pearl how she explores social issues in her own creative work as they pertain to our current climate. Well, I think that one of the things that all of us um, who are working creatively have had to come up against in this moment is what does our work mean and what can it mean at a moment like this one, at a moment when people are literally struggling not only with the health ramifications of this virus, but also with the huge rippling out of the economic effects of all of this. And I think that many times when I write about social issues or I write about something that I I want people to get excited about. It doesn't have the overarching fear and panic that people feel because there is a life and death illness that they can't do anything about. So I think a lot of what we're doing in keeping in touch with people, in keeping them aware of what artists are doing, is to address that fear and panic, is to say, don't be afraid. I know you're in your house by yourself or you're working at one of those essential jobs and you're worrying about your own health and the health of your family, but to kind of do what theater and art do best, which is to show us that we're all in it together. And people, you know, now that's like a big slogan, we're all in it together, we're all in it together. But in theater, we know that's true. Professionally, we know it because if the lighting person doesn't do the job they're supposed to do, if the actor doesn't know the lines, if the director doesn't know the play, and if it's a bad play, it's not going to work because we are literally all in this together. And I think that our commitment to that kind of idea 
ripples out in the social justice work that we do, especially at a moment like this one, when this play explores workers, it explores who is regarded as expendable and who is not expendable. When it looks at what does that job have to do with your own self-worth, with what you think about yourself when you go home every day. And those are questions that many of us did not think about in such a personal way. And now it's what Tanache was talking about. I mean, I'm a union member too, Playwrights have a union. So I had seven productions scheduled of a new play for next season, and I have no idea if any of them will go on, which of course makes me sad because I love my work and I love to see my work done, but which also has a tremendous economic impact, not just on me, but on the directors of those productions, on the actors who had already auditioned and been um, cast in those productions, so that all of the work that we do is so connected that I think we can see it so clearly in this play that we're bringing our own emotional lives in a way that many of us don't have to do in a production of Cinderella or something wonderful, but something that is really a fairy tale isn't necessarily what we're thinking and feeling when we get up every day. That was Alliance Theatre playwright-in-residence Pearl Clegg speaking with Lois Reitzis. The Alliance Theatre's Pilevsky Collision Project online performance is July 25th at 2.30 p.m. More information can be found on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, a celebration of the arts and the ways in which we express ourselves creatively. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with Dr. Tim Crimmins, professor of history emeritus at Georgia State University. He'll discuss the controversy surrounding Confederate monuments in Atlanta and at the Georgia State Capitol. Our producers are Ryan McFadden and myself. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And our host is Lois Reitzis. I'd love it if you'd follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. City Lights is now a podcast. Check it out wherever you download your podcast. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.